today we declare that you are good. God, no matter what is happening around us, no matter what the lies in our head are telling us, no matter what we see with our natural eyes, we declare that you are good. God, that you are at work in our world to bring about the full restoration that was accomplished by Jesus through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, to his ascension, to your right hand. And that right now he stands making intercession for each and every one of his followers. And so God, today, I pray that that mercy, that that grace would be applied to the lives of every single believer in this room, every single believer watching online right now. God, that you would bring healing, that you would bring peace, that you would bring restoration in each and every life today. God, that the testimonies that have been shared today would just be accomplished in the lives of every member of this body. God, throughout this community, that there would just be pockets of grace and mercy, God, this week ahead, where your presence and your power are manifested. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray today for our hearts. God, as we look into your word, as we continue to talk about the inexpressible and glorious joy that you have given to us as your followers. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come, that you would convict, that you would strengthen, that you would, would, would bring full restoration into our lives today. I pray that you would help us to see things that we have never before seen, that you would align our hearts, our thoughts, our lives with the truth of your word in a way that they have not been aligned before. God, bring everything into alignment today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. Thank you, worship team, for um, your flexibility with us today. And for those of you that shared, um, hey, who knows? Maybe this will become a new trend for us as we celebrate through the month of November. I was um, backstage and uh, Kendra came back to, to remind me of something right before we came on. And I'm like, I'm glad you weren't here like five seconds ago. I was doing this little jig back there because I just couldn't... Uh, help it. I mean, the music was so good, and I'm like, I was tempted to come out on stage and do it, but I don't know, maybe by week three. We'll see. But we are in a series, for those of you that maybe have not been here with us, um, it's called The Life You've Always Wanted, and it's based on a book by John Ortberg, and John has written a book about spiritual disciplines. There are copies of the book and reading guides out on the back table if you want to pick one of those up. There's also a study guide in the back of the book. And so this month, as we focus on chapter 4, as we, we focus on this discipline of celebration, I encourage you to read chapter 4, read the study guide, do the study guide, read, read scriptures on joy. If you go to BibleGateway.com and just type in the word joy, uh, it'll pull up all of the places in the scripture that it says joy. And you can read those and rehearse those and meditate on those and memorize those because this is what the book is all about. Not just this book, the Bible. This is what God's story is all about. It's about the hope of transformation. It's about the fact that Jesus accomplished everything for God to bring us back into right relationship with himself. It's the restoration of God's original design. And so uh, I encourage you, if you want to go to the podcast or to the Facebook page, you could catch up on some of the other messages that we've preached up to this point. But for the entire month of November, we're camping in chapter 4, the discipline of celebration. And today, I've I titled the message, Inexpressible and Glorious Joy. Inexpressible 
and glorious joy. And if you remember from last Sunday, the last thing that I gave you from the book were the seven things that we needed to focus on as we went through the month of November. And I'll remind you of them. We were to practice the discipline of celebration, doing things that we enjoy doing, pursuing joy each day, finding a joy mentor, praying for joy, setting aside one day a week to celebrate, unplugging from media for a week, that could help our joy quotient a lot, and then disciplining our mind to view life from a biblical perspective. Disciplining our mind to view life from a biblical perspective. And I would assume that every person that goes to church regularly assumes they are doing this. That we are viewing life from a biblical perspective. But I'm not convinced that we actually are always viewing life from a biblical perspective. And that's what we're going to talk about today in this idea of inexpressible and glorious joy. But I want us to watch a video first. And so um, if you want to cue up the Bible... Project. If you've never heard of the Bible Project, I love their videos. They put together some great things about the books of the Bible and the themes of the Bible. And this one is about heaven and earth. So watch this video, and then I'll come back and finish up. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but... This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice, 
and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. And so that is the biblical perspective, that you and I are these temples, these clean spaces now on the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. You are a pocket of God's presence out in the world. Where you work, where you shop, where you go to school, everywhere you are, you carry the kingdom of heaven with you. 
That should be far more exciting than it landed, so I, I'm not sure. So we carry the presence of God everywhere we go. We are to change the atmosphere around us, not change the behavior of everyone around us, change the atmosphere of everyone around us. And by changing the atmosphere of people, of the, the, the space around us, then people see the kingdom of God, and then they come into the kingdom of God, and then they can be transformed. And we have to continuously repent or res reset our minds to follow this biblical perspective that we are temples going out into the world. We repent not just of the overtly sinful ways, but we, uh, we repent of the subtly sinful ways, things like jealousy and manipulation and selfishness and pride, because we do not want to participate or align ourselves with the world around us, but with the kingdom of heaven. We demonstrate the kingdom of heaven everywhere we go, because our world around us is full of cynicism and mocking and frustration and hopelessness because that's what sin produces. And when God's people who are his temple align ourselves with the same cynicism, mocking, frustration, and hopelessness in our conversations and in our things, the, the way we live our lives, we are no longer affecting earth with heaven. We are just following earth. And we are called to come out of those ways and be separate from that and live in the kingdom of God. And we stay in hope because Philippians 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day the kingdom of God is set up the way it's fully described in Revelation, when heaven and earth become one again, until that day he is committed to finishing the work. And no boss, no employee, no neighbor, no friend, no co-worker, no aunt, no uncle, no cousin, no nothing can separate you or get you out of God's plan or design. And so stay focused on him. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And he is finishing that work. So don't get bent out of shape. Just deposit the kingdom everywhere you go. Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, is writing to the church, and he's expressing, I think he's expressing this in the same way. Chapter 1, he's writing to them, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it's the church. It's people that have put faith in Jesus, but they've been scattered. The world has scattered them. The laws of the countries they've been in, they're on the run, basically, and they're scattered everywhere throughout the world by God's design, by the way. It was his design that we spread out, and we didn't listen, so then he allowed persecution to come so they would spread out because he told them to spread out, and they didn't listen for chapters, years. They didn't listen. They all stayed in the one little place God told, that he told them to go. They didn't go, so he helped them go. There they go. And now, he, Peter's writing to them, verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Whenever the Bible speaks of this idea of predestined or chosen, it's not like God creates people and they're born and he's like, well, I'm going to choose that one and not choose that one. God has a foreknowledge that knows the end from the beginning. So he knows your life before even one day became. He knew your life before your parents' life started. 
So he knows the end from the beginning, and because of that foreknowledge, he has chosen those who have put confidence in him. So it's not really him that's chosen, it's really us that's chosen, but yet we've only chosen because he's chosen us. I know that's so confusing, but it, it's like he only, the only reason I've chosen him is because he pursued me. He's pursuing everyone, but not everyone is choosing him. But the only reason I chose him is because he pursued me. So it doesn't make me better than those who didn't choose him because I didn't choose him because of me. I chose him because of him. And that's important for us to remember as we walk around as temples. So we're chosen by the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit helps us live out the, the, the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? The sanctifying work of the of Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. Now, the only way I can be obedient to Jesus is the work of the Spirit. It's not me. It's not my work ethic. It's not my, my brains, my brilliance, my ability to do anything. The only reason I am obedient is the work of the Spirit of God in me. And the reason the Spirit of God is in me is because I put faith in Jesus because of His blood. And the only reason I did that is because He came to me. And the only reason I chose Him is because He pursued me. It's all about Him and none of it really about me. But I want to live in that kingdom because I've been in the other kingdom of this world. And I know how that ends up. And I know that there's sin and depression and anxiety and fear and hatred. And I don't want anything to do with that. And so He helps me to live obediently to Jesus. And notice he gives us grace and peace in abundance, meaning he gives us everything we need. Grace is the empowerment to do everything God asks of us. And he gives it to us in abundance. So Peter goes on in verse 3. So praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what other response could we have? I think we somehow are so underimpressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ these days. I mean, we talk about Jesus dying. We, we were in chapel on Friday, and we were just singing songs I was very familiar with, but they were just about Jesus dying and giving his blood for me, and I became so overwhelmed by that story. I mean, we've heard it a million times. Yeah, Jesus died on a cross for me. Don't we get it? You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. He did it. He did everything. I did nothing. He did it all. And then that should just so, be so overwhelming to us. And it should break out into praise often. In his great mercy. That's a key word. Do you understand what the mercy of God is? The mercy of God is him withholding what we deserve. That's what mercy is. Someone deserves something and rather than give them what they deserve, you withhold it. That's mercy. And what is in the holy place where God dwelt in the temple and the tabernacle? The mercy seat. Why is that important? Because you and I are the mercy seat. And instead of giving people what they deserve, we should be merciful as our Father in Heaven is merciful. But yet oftentimes, when people don't meet our expectations, or when people don't live the way we expect them to live, or think they should live, or live according to, according to what we think is important, or even what we deem God thinks is important, we don't give them mercy. And we don't recognize, when we don't give them mercy, we're not recognizing the amount of mercy God has given us. That's not my words, that's the scripture. 
when we, do, when we are unmerciful to others, we have not recognized the mercy God has given to us. Jesus told the parable in Matthew chapter 18 of the unmerciful servant. How could you withhold mercy from your fellow servant after I had mercy on you? See, there is no one in your life, in my life, that will ever need more mercy from me than God first gave me. And if I withhold mercy from them, I'm the unmerciful servant in that parable. And if I'm a temple of God in this world, I need to be merciful. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope. A living hope. Sometimes we just need to wake up in the morning and remind ourselves we have a living hope. I mean, I know it's bad. I know that there's all kinds of chaos. I know that things are hard in life. My life is hard too. But I have a living hope that no trial or tribulation or difficulty or unkind word or thing done to me could ever take away from me. I am held firmly in the hand of my master and there is overwhelming peace available to me if I choose it. Now, if I choose to focus on all of the yuck around me, well then, of course, peace, it's impossible for us to focus on all of the yuck around us and be at peace. Impossible. Where we set our minds is super important because we live in a world that is cynical and critical. That is the world, but that is not the kingdom of heaven. God is not cynical and God is not critical. In James chapter 4, verse 11, James says, don't speak evil against each other. He doesn't say, don't speak evil against each other when people don't deserve it. He says, period, or actually comma, don't speak evil against each other. If you criticize and judge each other, you're criticizing and judging God's law. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't talk to each other and point out? No, Jesus said to do it, but he said, make sure you deal with the log in your own eye before you deal with the speck in your brother's eye. Because if you don't deal with the mindset that you are just as bad off, if not worse, than the person you're about to talk to, you won't have grace and mercy in that conversation. You'll be critical and judgmental instead. And that's not how Jesus treated us. John 3.16, very familiar. God so loved the world, the people, that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, to criticize, to judge the world, but to save the world. Yes, a judgment is coming. It's just not here yet. And so we have to be these pockets of grace and mercy and kingdom and not mocking people for their beliefs or values, but being gracious to people. God demonstrated his own love for us, Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While I was in the worst possible state of my life, he gave his life for me. And I will never encounter someone who is not in it at least the same state I was. No one is worse off than I was. And I can be gracious and merciful to them because I've been given the Spirit of God. It's important for us to keep in mind the, the things, by the way, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today because I want us to have that biblical perspective and see, I think, how this all fits together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
Verse 14, the person without the spirit. Let me, let me change that. The coworker without the spirit. The cashier without the spirit. The family member without the spirit. Catch this. Does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. So stop reacting like you're surprised. Because they, they cannot understand because it's only discerned through the Holy Spirit. And the only reason you and I understand is because we have the Spirit. And again, it's only because He pursued me. It's not me. It's Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel and the display of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So what do we do? We break down the walls. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Jesus came showing the love of the Father, the acceptance of the Father. Did that mean he was like, oh yeah, just go ahead and sin, live however? No, he did not do that. But he started by being gracious and merciful and saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of God's promises are available to you. I am the clean space. You can come in. He didn't tell them to give away their sin before he healed them. He healed them. And then he talked to them about their sin. And we've created this theology that God can't certainly bless people who sin. He is kind to the just and the unjust. He died for us when we were sinners. I'm not trying to gloss over sin, but I'm showing us that the way to break down the, the blinded eyes of this age is the love and mercy and power of God. That's what opens people to the gospel. That's how Jesus lived. He did not mock them for their idolatry and their immorality. He did not mock them for their lack of values and their inconsistency. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul puts this out for Timothy. Timothy, your opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth, and they will, so that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And I know it's hard to work with people and live with people and interact with people on a regular basis that mock us and, and speak evil of us and mistreat us and don't do the things that we've asked of them if we're in uh, authority over them. I know it's frustrating and I know it's easy to just slip into that cynicism and frustration and anger and just be judgmental and critical and nobody can do anything right and nobody can do anything good and the cashiers in Huron are all terrible and every store is this it's easy to slide into that you don't even have to try just live but if you want to live counterculturally, if you want to live according to the spirit of this age you have to remember that people have been taken captives and so that person who's frustrating me I need to see them as a captive and I need to give them what they need to break those chains the mercy and love and power of God and when they come into the kingdom the, then they'll be able to understand the things of the Spirit. They can't understand why sin is sin until they actually have the Spirit. I mean, they can understand that they've broken God's law, but it's the love of God that opens the heart to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We live in a society that is so quick to label. I mean, we're, 
every time we go to Minneapolis or we go somewhere and I'm looking for a hotel and I always read the reviews, I don't know if you're one of those people, but it's always mind-boggling to me that one person can give it a one and say it was the worst place ever and the next person can give it a ten and say it was the best place ever. And I'm like, who are you supposed to believe? It's just like, and that tells me that the people who work in hotels are people. And I've been in a hotel at times where the toilet actually had like urine stains on the side of it. And I've been in that same hotel, and I never had any problems. And so the, well, it's that, that it's probably just one person who's a maid or someone that's cleaning that room that doesn't, or maybe it's just someone that missed something. I mean, have you ever missed something? Yeah, but when we go into a hotel room, we expect a clean room, and we act like we've never missed anything, and so I'm going to give them a review. I'm not telling us that we should never review hotels and restaurants, but some people, no matter what, you, what business you bring up, they can tell you what's wrong with that business. They can tell you why not to shop there, why not to go there, why not to eat there, why not to do there. Or temples. Temples of criticism and criticalness and cynicism. Or temples of God. Understanding that people aren't perfect. And sometimes my bad experience... It sometimes is about my bad attitude when I went in. We should move on. <laughs> and please don't think that I'm sitting up here saying, oh, follow me as I do this perfectly. I don't. And you know what? Sometimes I get even harder on people that I see doing it wrong. And then I have to remember, you know, they're no different than me. I get it wrong somewhere else. It's just not in the same place. And it's, so it's easy for me to be critical of this person because their wrongness is different than mine. But my wrongness is not as bad as theirs, right? It's the mind games we play. So we praise God for the living hope that he's brought us into. And verse 4 of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Remind yourself of this when you're frustrated and angry. There is an inheritance being kept for you and no one can take it who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's settled. It's done. It's mine. You can't touch it. You can make my life miserable on earth, but you can't touch what's coming to me. And if I put up with the miserableness you're making, I even get more, praise God. Verse 6, in all of this, you greatly rejoice not kind of rejoice, not, you know, every once in a while go, woohoo. You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So our faith needs to be tested. It needs to be proven. It, our faith is more valuable than gold. And our faith has to go through trials. And I promise you that this church is experiencing trials unlike anything any of us in this room have experienced. They're having things stolen from them. They're having people raped. They're having people murdered. They're having people in their lives beheaded for no other reason other than faith in Christ Jesus. 
And I don't know that any of us have ever experienced anything like that. And watching the way the church at large has responded over the last two years to the injustices we perceive are being done to us makes me wonder if we're ready. Because our faith is being tested. And I don't know that we're coming through the fire well. Because we're falling into mocking and cynicism and criticalness and we're supposed to be greatly rejoicing. When we live for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ and not our own comfort and pleasure, that's when we can rejoice. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. If you're King James-ish, you have joy unspeakable and full of glory. And if you have been around a while, you know the song. Maybe we need to sing it sometime. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because then my wife will sing it. But we have been filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Even though we're facing trials. Why? Because we're receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. My salvation cannot be touched by anything that happens to me in this life. And so I have an inexpressible and glorious joy. And I know that we're like, well, Pastor Tom, joy is not happiness. Joy is not an emotion. And I, I know that joy is not necessarily happiness, but this word has an emotion in Greek. It has an emotional attachment to it. It's gladness, cheer, joy, great happiness. You and I should be going through our day excited about what God is doing in, in our world. Are you crazy? Have you looked around? <laughs> Have you read the book? He's restoring it. He's bringing it all back together, and I've read the end. He does. I don't know how he's going to do it, but it's going to be great. So the question is, does inexpressible and glorious joy mark our life and our conversations and our social media and our responses and our relationships? Proverbs 17.22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine. Some of us just need to laugh. I know there's a lot to not laugh about. But there's a reason to celebrate. So, three things, real quick. Don't worry. I know what time it is. Um, don't panic. Our joy, number one, has to be rooted in Christ. Our joy has to be rooted in Christ. It has to be rooted in the fact that He is my clean space. He has made me. Because otherwise I get hard on myself because I don't live up to the expectation that I even have for myself. And, uh, I, man, I keep falling into the same pattern. And, man, I was hard on that person. Even when I try to change, I'm, I was hard on that person. I shouldn't have reacted that way. I shouldn't. You know, just admit it once in a while. Man, I overreacted to that. I let my emotions get the best of me. I apologize. I don't blame them. Well, you know, you made me overreact. I overreacted. Tell your kids that. Shock their pants off right there. Parents, when we overreact to our children, and we do, just tell them, I overreacted. I shouldn't have acted that way. Or when you complain about work in the ears of your children, apologize to your children. I overreacted. I had a bad day at work, and I let that my emotions get the best of me, and that's not the fruit of the Spirit, and so I apologize to you for that. Teach your kids that it's okay to make mistakes. Teach your kids to be merciful to themselves even. 
We have to be rooted in Christ Jesus, not in our perfection or our performance or other people or our circumstances. Jesus himself said, John 15, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Don't rejoice that you got fired. Don't rejoice that you're having hardship. Don't rejoice at a uh, medical diagnosis that's bad. But rejoice in the Lord. Always. And he says that I'll say it again, rejoice. Look at the story of Acts chapter 4. When the apostles are called in before the Sanhedrin and they're flogged. Okay, you've got to understand the Sanhedrin basically are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And the apostles are preaching in the name of Jesus, and the, the, the pe- God's people don't even like it. So they bring them in, and they flog them, and then they order them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the disciples got onto social media and told everyone about it and ranted and raved. Oh, no, wait, sorry, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, rejoicing, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Cha-ching. Go ahead and flog me. (laughs) You are building my inheritance. Thank you very much. And I realized how hard that is to live out in our daily lives. But it is the scripture. Paul himself says it in Philippians 2. If I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Rejoicing. Number two. Okay, rejoice in the Lord. Number two, make it a daily decision. A daily decision. We will not master this in a day or a week or a month. Practicing the, the, the discipline of celebration is not going to end at, on November 30th. <laughs> this is something that we are going to battle the rest of our lives because we live in a world that's bent opposite the kingdom of heaven. And so we are swimming upstream. Colossians chapter 3 Since you have been raised to new life in Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. And it doesn't mean think about streets of gold and mansions on a hilltop. It means think about the the kingdom of heaven. Think about what it's like and who it's about. And then set your mind on that. Because if you set your mind on the things of earth, and the disappointments, and the frustrations. How on earth are you going to express joy? It's impossible. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, always be joyful, never stop praying. I think those go together. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. God, what's your will for my life? Always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances. You do that and I'll get the rest figured out for you. And we all like want to know what job we should have and what spouse we should have and all these other important things. But God says, you can't have the right spouse if you're not joyful, praying, and thankful. You can't. I don't care if it's the one or not. We're looking to other things. You can't have the right job if you don't be joyful, praying, and thankful. You can't. It's not about our circumstance, it's about our attitude. Praise God. Okay, James 1, in case we don't fully believe me, I'll give you one more. 
James 1, 2 and through 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, poor service at a restaurant, bad cashier at Walmart, anything, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested by slow drivers, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. <laughs> Don't use the horn. Let your endurance grow. Because when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Man, don't fight against it. Don't let cynicism and hopelessness rob us of what God has in store for us. Number three, stay in hope. Stay in hope. Hope. When there's 2.2 seconds in the game, stay in hope. I love that I'm wearing this shirt today. What a great reminder that it's not over until it's over. And it's not over until heaven and earth are reunited again. And guess what? It's going to happen because God promised it and he sealed it with an oath. Can't be undone. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Sometimes bad things happen in people's lives and they're like, I don't know how God can make anything good come from this. Well, you have to make sure you stay called according to His purpose for you. That's going to be a key. But if you're only looking for comfort and pleasure in this life, then you're, you're going to have a hard time finding out how God works everything for good. Because God looks beyond this life. He's not limited by it. One last scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. This one might be a little out of order. I probably should have put it back up when we were talking about cynicism. But it's one of my favorites, and I have to remind myself of this verse often. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes. It's ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. What a great testimony today. You may not see anything happening, but you have the promise and you have the oath that if you keep sowing what is good, if you keep living according to the righteousness of the kingdom of God, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. That's the scripture. So, as we go through the month of November, I want us to think about living, the living hope that gives us inexpressible and glorious joy. One of the scriptures that I didn't read today comes from Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says we can come boldly into the throne of God, the presence of God, and we receive mercy. That means because of what Jesus has done for us, you and I can walk right into the presence of God because of Jesus. And the moment we get in there, we're getting mercy because we, no we have no business being in there. Nothing, nothing in me gives me the right to enter the presence of God. It's the mercy of God. But when we go into his presence, when we go into his throne room, we receive mercy and we find grace to help us in our time of need. I believe there's hope for every believer in America. Every believer. 
to live with inexpressible and glorious joy as we live out our final days on this earth. I believe it. And God can give us the grace that we need to. But we have to choose it, and we have to daily fight for it. We have to let his peace rule in our hearts. We have to let his grace have its work in our lives. And so I challenge you as we keep going through this month, continue to meditate on these scriptures, on the things that John challenges us from chapter 4. And let's continue to practice the discipline of celebration and celebrate with joy, inexpressible and glorious joy. Let's pray. As we pray to close the service today, I recognize that you might be in the room today or you might be watching online and you are not a temple of God's presence. Because in order to be a temple of God's presence, you have to, as the scriptures teach us, admit that you've gone your own way, that you've done things your own way. And you have to believe that Christ died in your place, that his death creates that clean space for you to enter into the kingdom of God. So you have to, as the scriptures say, repent and believe. You have to commit yourself to his kingdom and his rule and reign in every area of your life. And you might be here or you might be watching and you've never done that. And all it takes for God's spirit to come and reside in you is to do that. To put your confidence not in yourself, but in what Christ has done for you. To admit and acknowledge that you've made mistakes. And I want to encourage you, before you leave this room today, to do that. Acknowledge it before God. Put your confidence in the death of Christ. And commit yourself to follow him. And his spirit, the Bible says, comes to live inside of you and make you a temple, a place where God dwells everywhere you go. But for those of us in the room that have done that, we've accepted Christ, we are his temple. I want to challenge you today to acknowledge before the Lord, before we leave, any area of your life that has come to your mind throughout the service today where you've allowed cynicism, criticalness, judgment, anger, frustration, hopelessness, despair to enter into the picture, to cloud your thoughts, your words, your actions. I don't want you to leave here today trying harder to be a joyful person because you will fail. What I want us to do today is to admit to God how desperately we need Him to come into the areas of our lives where we lack. So we have to acknowledge those areas. And then instantly we receive mercy and grace. The power we need to overcome. The power we need to live as a joyful person. In fact, James tells us that God gives even greater grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. And so it would be easy today to just reason and rationalize in our hearts why we were justified in our bad attitude, in our criticalness, in our cynicism, and not receive the grace we need to become the transformed, inexpressible, and glorious joy people God has created us to be in Christ. So my hope is that you would take a moment and acknowledge to Him where you need it. My guess is every single one of us needs him somewhere. Because I know human nature. And I know how easy it is to act on our own instincts and impulses. 
when we've been wronged or mistreated. I'm guilty of it myself, probably on a daily basis. But today, Father, I want your mercy. So I acknowledge that I've let cynicism, criticalness, and judgment enter into my heart. There are people in my life that I don't believe the best in. I look for the flaws and the faults. And then I find what I'm looking for because that's what I'm looking for. And I recognize that I need you today to come and and literally put a salve on my eyes so that I see people the way you see them, so that I'm merciful as you are merciful, so that I see the mercy that you've extended to me in a way that causes me to be merciful to my wife, to my kids, co-workers, the people around me. And so Holy Spirit, give me, give us grace today to speak blessing and not cursing, to speak life, to bring life, to bring healing, to bring hope into every sphere of our life, our homes, our workplaces, our places of entertainment, the places we shop, every corner of this community. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be a people full of inexpressible and glorious joy who celebrate your goodness every day of our lives. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for persevering and being patient and going a little bit over today. Thank you, Kidman workers. If you watch this video later, we love you. And uh, I shouldn't have gone over. I apologize. But here we are. So I encourage you as you go out this week, set your minds on the realities of heaven and live as a mercy seat, a temple of God everywhere you go. God bless you as you go today. Thanks for being here.